This episode of Standard Orbit is brought to you by Audible.com, offering more than 180,000 titles for smartphone, tablet, and desktop. To get a free audiobook of your choice and help Trek FM at the same time, visit audibletrial.com slash trekfm. And also by Enterprise in Space, an international program for the nonprofit National Space Society. Find out how you can help science and education and become a virtual crew member aboard the NSS Enterprise Orbiter by visiting enterpriseinspace.org. Want to join the conversation and share your thoughts on this episode? Join the Babel Conference, our listeners group on Facebook. Just type B-A-B-E-L into the Facebook search field. We look forward to seeing you there. This is Walter Koenig, Chekhov from Star Trek, and you're listening to Trek FM. Risk is our business. It's like nothing we've dealt with before. Golly, Jim, I'm beginning to think I can cure a rainy day. I can't change the laws of physics. Now in standard orbit, sir. Uh, Captain, I do not think you realize the gravity of your situation. Soar to new heights of adventure with Captain Kirk, Dr. McCoy, and Mr. Spock. We have a dangerous situation out on Nimbus 3. Get those hostages back safely. This time, the crew is battling against hostile kidnappers, struggling to escape a Klingon attack. Warp speed now. And must stop a madman from stealing their ship. Our destination is the planet Shakari, at the center of the galaxy. What are you standing around for? You don't know a jailbreak when you see one. Fire the rockets! Hostile force has taken control of our vessel. Request emergency assistance. Voyage on an incredible journey where none have dared to go before. Star Trek V, The Final Frontier. Welcome, everyone, to Standard Orbit, Trek FM's dedicated podcast that covers the original and new cast of Captain Kirk and the Enterprise. I am Ken Tripp. Zach Moore is off this week filming Green Berets for Invasion Smallville. I think that'll work for him. We have assembled the best and brightest minds on all things Star Trek. It is something that cannot be debated. It is a fact. These are the smartest people in the world when it comes to Star Trek. So all you listeners, pay attention. I think it's important. So with that, let's start the introductions around. From Trek Geeks and Discovering Trek, my fellow New Englander, Bill Smith. Welcome aboard, sir. Thank you, sir. I'm, I'm excited to be here. Um, although you said the smart people were here. I, am I in the wrong room? Uh, no, you should be in the correct room, but you know, we have to allot for everybody in IDIC bill. Oh, okay. All right. So lowest common denominator. I'm happy to represent that today. It's an honor and a privilege to be here. As you know, Ken, Standard Orbit was one of the first podcasts I ever listened to, and it actually helped inspire me to be a podcaster. So thank you so much for having me here. Well, it's, it's an honor. I have, I've had the pleasure of being on Discovering Trek, and I'm a big fan of Trek Geeks. And, uh, and soon we will meet in person on my way up to New Hampshire. So I'm looking forward to that. Can't wait. Can't wait. Okay, I have a three-time, I have my number right here, a three-time co-host of Standard Orbit, frequent podcast contributor, and I believe the creator of Trek Tuesdays, and whose post started this train of rolling, Haley started. Welcome aboard, Haley. Hey there. Thanks for having me back. Yeah, three sounds about right. Um, 
Yeah, it was my invention for the Trick Tuesday. I think Bill and I were talking about it, and he's like, yeah, let's make this a thing. And so that kind of took off from there. It is one of those things that is funny. On Tuesday mornings, I make sure, whether it's a pair of socks, that I've got <laughs> something that has Star Trek on it. I, so it works. It's, it's in my head. Yeah, well, and that's what I tell people, you know, some people are like, oh, I can't wear anything at work. And I go, it doesn't matter what it is. I'm like, it can be a pin, it could be socks, it could be a tie, it could be a hat. I mean, it doesn't have to be a shirt if you can't wear a shirt, you know, so it's anything that you can wear. And sometimes mm -hmm. we do stuff that's not wearable. I mean, I have my bag that I take with me to work every day. It's the Enterprise Messenger bag, you know, so, yeah. I like it. Okay. And rounding this team off making sure we have the, the, the right ratios on board, right? We have a frequent contributor to the Babel Conference and who boldly responded to Haley and Bill in the positive on the OP, our friend, Brianna Fern. Welcome aboard, Brianna. Hi, thanks for having me. It's really, really great to be here. I'm long, long fan of Trek and particularly Trek 5, so I'm looking forward to the discussion. Yeah, well, you know, you, you were the one who spoke up, so this that kind of got us all going. Uh, I think it was you and Norm that were, were, were the big positive reinforcements on, on Star Trek V. And that's what we're going to be talking about today. So it's great to have you all here. And I'm going to start with some questions, just some basic questions on Star Trek V. We'll go around the horn. We'll go ladies first because chivalry is not dead, especially in New England. Right, Bill? Absolutely. Absolutely. So the first question is, and I know, Haley, it's been kind of new to you, Brianna, be interesting, but when did you originally see this movie and what was your initial reaction after you saw it? So I don't remember exactly when I originally saw it. I know I've seen it at some point, probably, in a, you know, when it was aired on TV at some point in my teens, because mm -hmm. uh, watching it with my daughter the other night, um, we were watching it and I said, yeah, I remember seeing this. And, you know, there were bits and pieces I didn't remember, but I definitely remembered watching it. Um, so I can't say initially what I thought, but I actually enjoy it. I don't think it's that bad. Well, there it is. Okay. Okay. I wasn't expecting that, but that's cool. All right, <laughs> All right Brianna, your turn. So I, I think I'm, I'm slightly unique in this position because I actually came to Trek very, very late in the game. Um, I grew up on Next Gen and uh, Voyager and Enterprise, and I actually never went back and got involved in the original series universe until after I saw the 2009 Star Trek with Abrams. So that for me was like, okay, I've got to go back and, and invest in these characters from the beginning now. So I didn't see the movies um, until probably only a few years ago, to be honest. Um, and so I unfortunately had a very um, different viewpoint sort of going into it. I was very critical even as I was watching it and loving it. Um, but I thought there was just so much, it sort of reminded me of um, Harry Potter and Half-Blood Prince in the way that there was so much character development going on, even if there wasn't like a big large scale attack sort of investment. So I was, I was immediately drawn to the, the smaller character development moments that I saw happening in that, that were as strong in the others, I thought. Okay, excellent. Thanks for kicking that off. And, and, and I guess welcome to the club. Because you're <laughs> 2009. That's neat. Be, uh, you know, running a, a show like I do, which is focused on the original series, and of course, the reboot. Um, a lot of the folks that I talk to, especially in this corner have been Trek fans for years. I know you said you grew up on next gen. But um, 
Yeah, that, that, that's wonderful. All right, Bill, sir, you're up. Let's see. I saw this movie. Let's see. It opened on June 9th, 1989. I saw it on June 10th, 1989. I know that for a fact. I saw it in Concord, New Hampshire. I went with a bunch of my friends. I was excited because, you know, Star Trek Four was a massive runaway hit. So they all decided, hey, let's go see Star Trek Five, And I'm like, all right, I'm down with that. I've been a Trekkie for ages. And um, I came out of that theater never having been more disappointed by a film in my life. Um, and, and I'm sure the reasons why are, are numerous. Um, it didn't prevent me from buying it on home video and watching it about 50 or 60 more times after that to see if I could develop a love for this movie. Um, it, it's turned into, there are things about it I appreciate, but overall it's, it's not my favorite. I think it's probably one of the weak, weakest outings of the original cast. I'm with you. I understand that. It's funny. I um, was coming back from Bermuda. I got married down there and was so thrilled to see Star Trek V for a couple of reasons. One, Star Trek IV was awesome. It was an incredible movie. Uh, the next generation had started. I was a TOS guy, and I was like, all right, this movie's going to kick ass and make sure it's on a par. I, was, I, I like TNG, by the way. I'm not you know, putting it down at all, but I wanted TOS to come in flying high and, and just knock it out, and I was really disappointed. I, I, I have to say... Um, you know, just, just the quality of the film. As time has gone on, I've been able to appreciate more aspects of it, but I'm aligned with you, Bill. I think it's probably the, um, the weakest of the TOS movies. It's not the weakest Star Trek movie by any means, but I do believe it is the weakest of the original, original six, let's put it that way, because I don't count Generations as a TOS movie. That has to be a generation, the next generation movie because it's terrible and I don't even want it in my portfolio. So go from <laughs> we'll there. put the blame on them. Yeah, you know, that's I do. Oh, thanks. <laughs> absolutely do. Oh my God, how, how can two people write all good things and then come up with that awful movie? Anyway, oh. sorry, I, I, I digress. Now, tangents are allowed by anyone on this thing. It's not just me. Okay. <laughs> so, so if you want to go, go. All right. So in your opinion, Haley, what, what were the things that you enjoyed about it, though? What were the things that went right? Because you're, you're not that critical from what I just heard. No, I'm not. And, you know, I think part of it is, is just because I appreciate the small moments. Like, I love the ending. I, I love that. I think that for me, you, you see that development of that Spock, Bones, and Kirk kind of being brothers for each other. And, and you can kind of see that development. So, you know, we recently watched the original series. So I'm like Brianna. I grew up on Next Gen. I did not do anything with the original series, granted, aside from seeing most of the movies, I'm sure, at some point in my youth. Um, but I never watched the original series until, what, it was this last year that we started? Or this year? Now I don't remember. Anyway, I can't remember last week. So, um, but I, I appreciate how their growth has kind of come not just through the original series, but through the movies itself. And so I love the ending of it. I think those three sitting around that campfire, I know people don't like it and the singing and the whatever. I think it's great because of those character moments, like Brianna was saying. There are issues, the whole like cyborg thing just gets me and I get it. But at the same time, I will say if I had a half brother, and I was a Vulcan or whatever race, and he kind of went woo crazy and, and decided to follow the route of emotions, which 
at this point, we know Vulcans have not, for years, they do colonar, they don't, they don't have their emotions, they don't rule by their emotions, for a long, long time at this point, I wouldn't want to talk about them either, outside of Vulcan itself. So I get that no one else knows about him, aside from other Vulcans, because that makes sense to me. No, that, that makes sense. And you are a Vulcan, correct? <clears throat> I am. Okay. Or at so least you would... half Vulcan. <laughs> okay. I do get Let emotional us... sometimes. We'll see. <laughs> <laughs> okay. And what what about you, Brianna? What were the what were the aspects of this movie that that really connected with you? I think it was the scenes in general. We had a lot of really strong scenes in this one, and particularly that of of family. You know, and Haley mentioned it echoing itself there at the end. Um, this idea that they've created their own family and things happen, secrets are kept in families um, and how you react when those secrets come to light um, and how do you answer the question of ultimately why are we here and how do we know what we're supposed to do while we're here, you know, everyone's going to have different thoughts on that and the way that you sort of come together with it is a very, very sort of interesting thing to me and particularly, I mean, I just, I love the main, the triumvirate. And so seeing them sort of continue is just incredible. So like the scenes, of, I think if they had picked any other song than Row, Row, Row Your Boat, um, those campfire scenes might have been a little stronger. Um, but like there was one, he mentioned um, sun, moon sets on Rigel 6 or something like that. It's like, no, I want to hear that song. Um, but so while there were some really campy moments, no pun intended, um, I think the themes of, of family and, and friendship sort of continuing to, to grow in these work were my absolute favorites. And, and all of these things wrapped within the nugget of such fun humor, um, all the one-liners and all just the funny little quips here and there um, that superficially seem like, okay, that was dumb, but they're wrapping up these really strong narratives running underneath it that are just filled with with character development okay that was pretty comprehensive all right bill you're up sir you know i think there are a couple of things about this movie that work for me overall uh, the first of which is how true this script stays to spock you know Haley touched on a little bit before but if you think about it in journey to babel the very beginning of the episode the vulcan ambassador and his wife embark upon the enterprise they're greeted by captain kirk and Kirk and McCoy have no idea that they are Spock's parents. Why? Because Spock didn't find it was relevant. So it's not out of character at all for him to have a half-brother or other relative that he wouldn't have talked about because it wasn't logical to bring up during the conversation. So that's something that I've always thought worked really well for Spock and, and stayed 100% in character for him. The other one is the examination of how we humans treat and deal with our pain and our mistakes. You know, it's something that, you know, given hindsight, we're, we're want to do. But when faced with it at the time, it's, it's usually an uncomfortable thing. And the people in this film are released from their pain by Cybok through whatever means. Maybe it's some kind of mind meld. You know, maybe it's just some sort of, uh, of self-actualization. It's hard to say. But, um, and then Kirk is Kirk. You know, he, he needs his pain. It's, it's what drives him. It's what fuels him. He doesn't need to be told he should have turned left when he turned right. That's very Kirkian in, in my mind. So those elements overall for me work exceedingly well, you know, on paper. Okay. Makes sense. And I, I think that was very well said. I, um, for me, 
I guess it was those aspects of the show that I really enjoyed as well, of the movie that I, that I enjoyed as well. The family element, obviously the big three. And you knew it was all kind of coming to an end. And like I said, the, 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 the things I liked were the camp scenes, I, even though they were <laughs> campy camp scenes. Okay. Um, they still were able to pull it off. And you could see the, um, the, 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 as they say, the Trinity really coming together you know, in a solid way amongst the top three. And and I did appreciate that a lot. I thought that there was, um, you know, some, you know, from a, from a sailor's point of view, some some nice views, especially when they were approaching the ship, and you know, just uh, the little discussion of whether it was Macefield or Melville, uh, who who said, you know, all I ask is for a, a a tall ship and a star to stare by. I actually know that whole poem, by the way. But anyway, it's uh, it's one of those things where. There, there were bits and pieces here and there that I, I really liked. And I thought the, the scene with Cybok in the officer's lounge, observation lounge, whatever that was. First of all, that lounge was cool. I really wish they had kept it. It was gorgeous. Uh, it really was. And from a production point of view, the sets were actually pretty good. I mean, they, they, they had some errors here and there, you know, like they're in Shuttle 5 and everything says number three on it. And little things that only Star Trek people would know. Or when they arrive at the uh, center of the galaxy and they go down to the planet, you can see the roads going up and around the, <laughs> the mountain. You know, it's supposed to be a, silly little things like that. But I thought the the production of it, I thought Zimmerman, I thought the bridge of the ship looked as good as it ever had. I thought that the, um, like I said, that lounge was really good. And, and, and a lot of the ship design features, you know, they, they put some time into it. And, and it, so it, it, it looked good. We'll get into the special effects and things later. But you know, overall, it was it was aesthetically pretty strong. Uniforms were pretty cool, that type of stuff. So I guess I liked more of the things that were that 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 weren't as material to the plot. I, once we really got past, once the mission really got underway and they were heading to Nimbus Three, that's where it, it kind of fell apart until that scene where uh, the three of them were face to face with Cybok in the uh, observation lounge. So. Okay. I think for me, one of the biggest things, mm -hmm. I didn't like the Klingon aspect of it. You didn't like the Klingon. Okay. Well, that fits right into what we're going next. So <laughs> what are the things that bothered you about it? You know, it just, I mean, I get that at this point, we're still not friends with the Klingons, um, but it just was really awkward. And I get that you have, you know, this one Klingon and he wants to, he's tired of like not really doing anything and not engaging anything, but he wasn't, I don't know, he was too soft as a Klingon kind of in a way, if that makes any sense. Like I would expect, you know, if he's bored, he would be more like Chang was in six and I'm going to be super aggressive about it. And granted, yeah, he kind of was, but it just, I don't know, with everything else that was going on with Cybok, it just didn't mesh well. Like the B plot just didn't mesh well with the A plot very well. I think if it had been written a little bit better, it might have worked, but mm -hmm. it just kind of didn't quite work for me. Were there any other aspects that didn't work quite well for you? No, just that, really. Just that? I'm, okay. <laughs> I'm not as critical as like Bill is. I, like we were talking earlier, and, and people can tweet at me later. I already put that out last night. I will watch five as much as people don't like five over Nemesis any day. You know, you, you, you've got a lot of next gen fans <laughs> out there. Um, ah, bring okay. it. <laughs> <laughs> well, I am in agreement with you there, Haley. 
What about you, Brianna? What were some of the things that, that you wish they could have done a little better with this movie? I think I do have to sort of agree with Haley on the Klingon. It almost felt like a throwaway plot um, where they were already juggling so much. I don't necessarily know if it was even necessary. And But the big thing that sort of I keep coming back to when I think about reasons that people probably hate this film or think of it as least worthy is um, the thing that I've heard other people, you know, you guys have talked about it before on the podcast, and that Shatner just tried to do too much. Um, this whole concept of finding God, let's do that. Um, it's just, it, it showed that he was trying to handle too much. And I mean, the concept of that, you could have done so much more um, with Shockery, you know, if it hadn't, you know, been that. And, you know, even as soon as Cybok admits it, you know, that he's, um, I've got this vision from God, and that's why we're going there. And Kirk's like, you truly are mad then. Um, it sort of almost threw away a huge potential point because for the rest of that onward, then you were really sort of curious what Cybok was after. And then it's sort of, as soon as you learned that, it's like, oh, this is just sort of like another religious fanatic. You know, what is this? And of course, religion always plays into Trek, and that's a great strength of it but I always wonder if it was handled correctly or not within this film. And, and I lean more toward the idea that it was not handled correctly and that it was simply trying to engage with too large a concept for the structure it was already setting up. Um, you already had a far more interesting storyline set up with the presence of Cybok himself and what he was after um, for it to be such a huge thing. Um, sort of just overloaded the story and it's sort of, that's what sank it, I think, ultimately. Hmm. Okay. I, I like what you had to say there, uh, making me think a little bit more. And Bill, what about you? Oh, I, I may have a few things here. Uh, just say yeah. That's um, a really large computer listing you print out you have there. Yeah. Uh, it's scrolling for days. Um, okay. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to keep on, on the same vein with the Klingons because it's one of my fundamental problems with this film. They eventually turn the Klingons into caricatures of what Klingons should be. You know, uh, people who listen to Trek Geeks have heard me refer to the fact that I think the, the Klingons have not been depicted very well and they seem more like a Swedish heavy metal tribute band. And Claw is the perfect characterization of that. He doesn't look like a serious Klingon. I don't think of him in the way I think of Krug in Star Trek Three or Kor in the original series or even after this, Chang in Star Trek Six: The Undiscovered Country. And they almost seem to be there for comic effect. And it makes no sense whatsoever. And then when you get to the end of the film and there's the apology, I, I, it, it made me want to throw up. I'm not going to lie. And I'm sorry to everyone who loves Star Trek V, but to me that was just the big slap in the face at the end of the movie. Um, I understand that Star Trek V is campy. I don't dislike it for its camp. I dislike the employment of camp at this phase in the franchise because none of the movies that came before this had any camp whatsoever. It's like when Lowry was writing this, he time traveled back to 1966 and said, let's do one of these stories. And I understand on some level what he was trying to do, but I think there's a big difference between 30-year-old actors trying to play camp and 60-year-old campers trying to play camp with a wink and a nod to the camera to some extent. So can I ask you a question there, Bill? Yeah. Do, you, yeah. do you really think that they set out to do it campy? Because that, that wasn't my impression. I, I, I go back and forth on this. I think there are times where it seems like they did in certain scenes. And then there are other times where I think it just sort of happened naturally because of Shatner's direction. 
Um, you know, as a, fir- a first time director, you know, for, for whatever failures this movie has that could or could not be directly attributed to him, I think that that style and that pacing probably falls on the director. And I think that some of that camp, however unintentional, probably was the result of, of Shatner, perhaps. That's just my feeling on it. Um, the other, one of the other significant problems I have with this movie is just the outright marginalization of Scotty, Uhura, Chekhov, and Sulu. The latter of which, Chekhov and Sulu, are, are portrayed as teenage boys chasing after a hot Klingon woman, which is completely out of character for them. At the end of the movie, at the reception on board the Enterprise, they're following her around like, you know, they are freshmen in high school at the senior prom trying to peek in the girls' locker room, and it just really bothers me. And then I understand the whole Uhura-Scotty possible relationship thing, but Scotty's treated as borderline incompetent in this movie, and that really bothers me too. When I couple that with the fact that they've kind of marginalized the Enterprise to some extent, which is as big a character in the original series as, as any of the seven actors, you know, it's, it's falling apart. Uh, Scotty thinks it was built by monkeys, perhaps, at the beginning of the movie. Um, it, it, it just it really sets the whole film off on the wrong foot for me. And then lastly, I have to say that the whole what does God need with a starship thing, although incredibly TOS at its core, is a little ham-handed in this movie. Um, It works for 1966 television. It doesn't necessarily work for a film franchise that has delivered two really heavy, huge box office movies and a fourth lighthearted movie that was one of the biggest movies of 1986. I have a question for you guys. And I was thinking about this. Do you think it's possible that so many people dislike five because it came after four? So, like, if four had been it, or if five hadn't been made and we went from four just to six, do you think that's part of why people don't like it? Because of four. Because four, to me, and I was thinking about this the other morning, you know, TOS has, and in a lot of comedy, there's hee-hee funny, and there's ha-ha funny. And I think four is more ha-ha funny than hee hee funny. There's hee hee funny moments in like motion picture, Tiwa, you know, two, three, five, and six, and then throughout the series as well. And I think hee hee funny, which sounds really funny saying that, is mm-hmm. a little more subjective than ha ha funny, whereas ha ha funny, more people, most people find that funny. So I'm wondering if five suffers because four was so funny. And, you know, you have two and three, I think maybe if five had been after three instead of after four and been written just a little bit better, it might have had more appreciation. So that's my question. I think that's a great point. I think that's exactly the case since you frame it in those terms. Star Trek has not always done humor very well. There are times where it does it exceedingly well, where it's lighthearted, it's a little moment. A lot of the kicker scenes at the end of some of the original series episodes are humorous. But Star Trek IV was really kind of a unicorn in the sense of comedy within Star Trek. It fired on all cylinders, and, and all of the jokes in that movie landed perfectly. You get to Star Trek V, and people are, you know, who have never been exposed to Star Trek before are thinking they're going to get a little more of the same in this, and the humor just doesn't work nearly as well for me. I think, Haley, what, what you brought up was um, an excellent point. 
when they were making Star Trek five, it just came off Star Trek four and you had the next generation on as well. Right. So there's a lot of competition there, but Star Trek four was the most universally loved Star Trek movie. It brought in people who were not Star Trek fans into the theaters to see it. And it made a ton of money. I think that they were just overly ambitious in trying to check the box and make sure that they had the right elements in order to make it like Star Trek four. So Here's a, here's a complex, you know, cerebral type of subject that we can lock in. That gets the Trekkies in. Let's make it funny. That gets the kids in and the people that, that, that you know, uh, wouldn't necessarily come to see it. And let's see how we can make this, you know, universally appealing to everyone. And then they just didn't execute on it. So I never felt that they were trying to make it campy. I just thought they were just trying to find a formula. And the reason Star Trek or work so well is the comedy was organic, right? You can't help it. You are definitely um, stuck. Uh, you know, when, when, you're, when you're a fish out of water story, that, that's what happens, you know? So I, I think that, uh, that that's really the difference is they tried to capture that again in a way to make it the most appealing movie that they could. And a lot of that is just ego, right? It just, it just didn't flow. None of this movie to me was very organic. I, I thought the, the plot was forced. I thought the humor was forced. Uh, the fact that the special effects were terrible, all, all those things kind of came together and, and really harmed the film. So, but great question. So Brianna, did you want to follow up? I think it is interesting. Um, and then of course you have you know, since Nimoy directed four there's automatically this sort of ingrained competition, whether they would have thought about it that way or not. And it is an interesting prospect, I think, if it had come after three and if they had switched places. Um, I still just wonder about the whole, the whole master plot of Searching for God, though. Um, there was just so much more that was going on before that element of narrative got brought up that was far more interesting. Um, I think whether it had come after three or not by bringing up that storyline, um, it, you know, and, and Bill's right, well, very TOS, um, just wasn't the right fit for the second half of a movie. Um, and I don't know, I, I think it was still trying to do much regardless of what its original sort of goal was, whether it was trying, it wasn't trying to be campy, but it was trying just to reach all audiences. Um, it still, it just fell flat in that area, I would say. Mm. What's interesting is that Roddenberry himself tried to put forth a number of scripts in Finding God, various different scripts in the image going back even before the motion picture. And, it, you know, st when he started trying to write a script in 1972 up, he had all these huge themes that involved God, you know, and, and kind of pushing kind of the same thing, you know, winding up at, at a, I don't know if the right word is humanistic ending or whatever, but it, it was just one of those things. And so the studio kept saying, no, no, no. And if you read Shatner's book, Movie Memories, and they're talking about these scripts that he was writing, he thought ambitious and all that other stuff, but would never go across a global audience. It wouldn't be successful. And here he is, and he comes up with a God plot. So I thought that in itself was the height of irony. It, it may also be where he was uh, in that phase of his life. I mean, I can't believe the guy's 87 and he's still moving along like a machine. But back then, 
you know, he's not that much older than me when he made that movie. You start thinking about those types of things a little bit more, I think. And I think that was probably just what was on his mind. But it was uh, an interesting plot choice to make, considering how many times they told Roddenberry, you can't do these things. No, bad. You know, slap him on the wrist. We're not going to go with that script. Come up with something else. And yet Shatner came up with that. And his original script was a heck of a lot more ambitious than when they wound up with. You know, I don't know if you've if you've read about it, but it is interesting. He, it was it was supposed to be a heck of a lot deeper, and it was really going to be essentially a, a movie that says definitively that God doesn't exist at the end of it, right? <laughs> so I mean, it's like, yeah, you know, of course the studio's going, ah, you can't do, that. <laughs> you know, you're out of your mind. So interesting there. Uh, what are your thoughts, Bill? I think if they'd been able to make that movie, I think it would have been a whole lot more compelling. You know, even if you look at what Shatner had planned for the rock monster at the end of the movie, which doesn't look unlike an Excalibur, let's be honest. Um, I think that that probably would have gone a long way as opposed to just having this alien that was purporting himself as God. To have him transform into something else that is much more fearsome, I, I think probably gives that scene a completely different weight and changes the end of the movie a little bit. Now, if you could just chop off the Klingon apology after that, that would be fantastic. But... Um, <laughs> Klingons apologizing? Come on. Yeah, Come yeah. On. Unless they did it like when the Fonz tried to apologize and he couldn't do it. That would have been kind of funny if he was working on it for like 10 minutes. All I can see is Claw, you know, hitting a jukebox with his fist and having it play Klingon opera. I will say, you know, considering that he kind of seems a little bit of like a weaker Klingon, him apologizing or at least being forced to apologize. It, yes, it's out of character for Klingons in general, but maybe not for Claw himself. Well, he got demoted, right? In the next movie, he was a translator. Yeah, yeah, he was. Mm -hmm. See, bad things happen. You say, I'm sorry, you're, <laughs> you're going to the back of the bus in the Klingon homeworld. That's just, <laughs> that's just how we work on it. So one of the things uh, that, that really bothered me for a movie, I think it was between a 25 and $30 million budget, which wasn't small for back in those days when it was made in 88, came out in 89. They, um, the effects were just horrible. And it really pulled me out of the movie. And I got so spoiled from the motion picture and then the, the following three movies, you got used to Star Trek, you know, getting the bar up there. And a lot of people that I know of that really like this movie say, oh, it's just like the TV show, you know, just focus on the story. The effects don't mean as much. No, I wanted my cake and I wanted to eat it too. And I thought they just felt horribly flat on it. And uh, it also, the other, the other piece of it is too, which, which I've always known, but it bothers me when you see it. Shatner doesn't know anything about Star Trek, okay? He doesn't know anything about it. You know, 72 decks or whatever the heck it was, and just the way he speaks to things, you just go, man, I mean, it's, it, didn't anybody on set say, no, we got to do this, or you've got this wrong? I guess um, they, they couldn't uh, bring it back, I guess, towards the center, or the people that were working on it, kind of like Nicholas Meyer, who honestly said he just didn't care about that stuff. But I don't know, that, that's the... The geek in me, Bill, uh, I guess, is uh, I, I want all these things to be lined up and to be somewhat uh, flowing from film to film with some consistency. I'm not a continuity um, canon guy necessarily, but I like having certain elements. Uh, well, I'm going to admit, through. I'm going to admit in this case to being a continuity snob. Um, 
because there's so much that was just so easy to get right. Normally, I wouldn't really care, but it's like you said, the Enterprise doesn't have 73 decks, and the top deck is not deck number 73. Even if it did, it's deck number one. It's the bridge. Um, there's, there's some freedom in Meyer saying, yeah, I'm not really a fan. You know, he has that conceit, and we let him have a pass on that because he created movies that were fantastic. He figured he directed two and four, wrote a good chunk of them. I'm uh, sorry, directed two and six, wrote a good chunk of those, and also wrote, you know, the, the San Francisco scenes in four. So we know that he could at least tell a good story. So he gets off the hook by giving us movies that were actually really great. I think that if five had had the same kind of, of story behind it, I think that we as Star Trek fans who, who dislike the movie necessarily would probably give it more of a pass um, simply because at the end of the day, it would have told a Star Trek story very well. I think the only part of uh, that I like about the production, I love how the ship is in just utter disarray, but I love when Kurt says that he misses his old chair. I think that's one of my, all-time favorite things and you know because I mean you would you know you you sit in this one kind of chair for so long and then suddenly you get this chair that looks more like it belongs on the bridge of the E than a constitution class like it just kind of like it it fit with the overall look of the bridge but at the same time I was like yeah no I that doesn't quite mesh well like that looks more like the Enterprise and I get it because at that time TNG is is running and has been on for a little bit, but it's like, really, I don't think that they would have chairs in constitution class, even though it's the A that look like chairs that belong on the D or later the E. It just, it's a little too far forward for the bridge set. So you're telling me it shouldn't look like a wraparound sofa. <laughs> I'm trying to follow you a little bit. <laughs> no. <laughs> I mean, I liked the color of it. I'm like, hey, it's a blue chair. Yay, Team Blue. But at the same time, I'm like, I get why he's like, I don't like my chair. I miss my old chair. But I love everything being broken. I think that right there is just funny. But the Jeffrey's tubes, too. Can we talk about those? Because why are they so ginormous? And you can stand up right in them. And then you get to the D and they're like, you're crawling, like army crawling on your stomach. I'm like, what is this? Not only are they so huge, but then Scotty knocks himself out in it, so it's like it's it's doubly ironic. Well, um, he knocks him out, and he he knocks it out, and he sees it coming. Yes. It's not like he turned around and it was right there. He walks square into it because it's right in front of his face. Yes. <laughs> yes. The, I mean, it being so big, those tunnels, and then just the whole idea of the ship being in such disarray, it it doesn't feel right. Um, it. I like what it did, but there was there was too much. It it just it had this this wrong feeling to it. And while it was interesting then, because there's no better time to throw in character turmoil than when the environment is also um, equally in disarray. Um, in terms of it, just it, following the timeline of it, it it was just wrong. <laughs> I think it, they should have maybe then like at the end of it if it wouldn't have been, all of those little minute things have been corrected, you know, if at the end of the film, we would have seen the right chair there or something um, to sort of almost show a symbolic return to, okay, things are back to normal now. Um, the ship isn't made by monkeys anymore. Scotty has actually pulled it together like he does, um, but we don't, we don't really see that. 
No, we we jump into Star Trek Six, and it's many many years later, so we don't we don't get to see the ship evolve or be the ship of the line that it's supposed to be. And I never ever liked um, when they took the Enterprise to your point, Bill, and they made it less than what it was, which was you know the flagship, the the most powerful ship in the fleet, that type of thing, and they uh, and they treat it horribly. Even in Star Trek Two, it bothered me where it went from from the motion picture being the ship of the line to a training vessel. I just thought the whole thing drives me crazy. But I, I hear what you're saying on that piece. And I, I agree with you. I, I don't think anything on board ship really worked well. But like I said, in the beginning, we talked about production, the sets were phenomenal. Um, I understand what you're saying about the Jeffries too. But, you know, Scotty was getting pretty big. And you had to have allotment, you know, for those types of things too. He, I, I, I don't see him running up and down the Jeffries tubes like he was in 1966 either. You know what I mean? So times are different. And I would debate you a little bit. He didn't see it coming. He turns his head and the beam is at an angle. So if you're looking straight ahead, the beam's at an angle and it hits him kind of sideways. But he was, takes three steps. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, it was ridiculous. <laughs> oh, they, again, it was another cheap laugh that- yeah. He know, was kind of talking to himself. So he was a little distracted when he ran into it. I want to know how John got him to sickbay. Yeah. Yeah. Or why? Like, why would he be like, yeah, I'll take him to sickbay? Like, well, he was told to. All right. right. Sulu said, get right. him to sickbay. And I'm looking at this really little skinny guy with, I'm going, oh, good luck. <laughs> he probably hit his head four or five more times on the way out. I'm going to go remember, with, oh, go I'm going to go with site to site transport because they figured out a way to breach the galactic barrier, you know, and instead of taking 20 years to get there, it took a matter of hours. So maybe uh, John is a transporter expert and figured out a way to get Scotty into a sick bed. We'll go with that. We'll go with that. Now let's talk about one element too that, that is a big gap in this movie. And it is in the novel. They do explain why. They don't explain how the ship breached it other than you're overcoming your fear, right? Was what they, what they were talking about. But no ship had ever gone through it. No probe had ever returned. No one, you know, no one survives the Great Barrier type of thing at the center of the galaxy which is another issue in of itself. But it was just one of those things where in the book, it is at least illustrated that Cybok gets these signals from whatever it is, uh, you know, the God creature or whatever, and gives him the ability to manipulate the shields and all that other stuff so that they can breach it. At least that made sense other than just, hey, we're just going to go do it because we can. So it was kind of an odd thing too. I thought, you know, that you can't have this big setup and then it only took them, I think, maybe 15, 20 seconds to get through this massive amount of whatever it was, water and chemicals coming at you, but interesting to me. Well, nobody has ever breached the galactic barrier except for this very crew, which did it in where no man has gone before in 1966. I, um, I thought the galactic barrier was on its way to Andromeda, right? So the outskirts, and that this was the barrier at the center of the galaxy. How many That's barriers, how I had it in my head. How many barriers do we have? <laughs> you know, it's, it's a fair question. I, I, I find myself always running up against them in my line of work, but yeah, I, I guess yeah. you're right. Yeah, yeah. yeah, it could be a I, few. You yeah. know, it's, I, I had never read the book for, or the novelization of Star Trek V, partly because I didn't want to hate myself afterwards. <laughs> um, which is harsh, I know. I'd say that for comic effect, but um, it, it, it was one of the, the aspects of this that always bothered me. Perhaps it was because of their fear, but I mean, the galactic barrier is a real thing. I mean, it's a visual thing. You see it. 
So I assume that something else had to happen beyond them just not being afraid anymore, you know, because at the end of the day, the Enterprise is a ship constructed by humanoids. And there had to be some reason why nobody had ever done it before that, that goes beyond, well, that's scary. So yeah. uh, that would have been nice if they'd explained that a little more in depth. And I guess that's where I was going because you get the cyborg speech, you know, the sound barrier will never be broken. It was broken. You know, this wouldn't happen. It happened. And he just kind of talks along those lines and then they just go and do it. But there was no science, even pseudoscience or techno babble. I like bits and bobs of it. You know, at least it helps move the plot and you can understand how they were able to do it. And then, you know, of course, then a, a rust bucket bird of prey goes through like no problem either. So what's up with that? You know, I, I don't know. Let's, uh, any, any other thoughts from, from the team here on the production values of, of the movie? I would say that the beginning, there were some, uh, I think we've already sort of touched on the, the production values that did work well. And I will say that that is one of the coolest opening scenes to a Star Trek movie that I've ever seen. Um, that slow motion horse coming across the desert um, is just, it's so, you, you almost like you almost forget you're watching Star Trek. You want you think you're watching some other movie or something, and then all of a sudden, it turns into you know these five like you're Vulcan. Um, but I thought in terms of, of opening scenes, um, that really sort of set set the tone for the okay, this is going to be a different sort of Star Trek, and we're going to tackle some some more exotic themes here than than what we're traditionally sort of used to. That's a good call out. And it was a beautiful shot scene, beautifully shot scene. And it does, I think that's why when you get to the other side of it, it's kind of like, really? Because it, it seemed like it was going to be epic. And that's what Shatner was running for. He was looking for like Star Trek, Ben-Hur type caliper, big, big, big. He was always thinking big. And reading his book was fascinating because of all the things that, that he encountered or whatnot. And, um, you know, one thing we'll say about his director all of the character, all the cast members, even though I, I agree with you, Bill, that their, their parts were really subpar and lowered, really thought, you know, that, that Shatner was going to come in, be an arrogant jerk or whatnot. And they found him to be um, a strong, positive reinforcement guy and giving them good direction and had a ton of energy and was, you know, working hard to try to make it right. So the effort was there, even in trying to be a good castmate a good director and really work with the actor which is surprising because most of the original cast didn't especially back then didn't have a lot of nice things to say but at least they gave him the credit for that and uh and he did try to capture those shots as best he can you know trucks breaking down union problems things like that he was lucky to get that shot it was towards the end of the day and it just was the most beautiful sky uh when when they took it you know silhouetted so they, they did a nice job with that Okay, so let's, um, I, I don't know, one of the things too, like it's funny because on, on Standard Orbit, the, uh, the music at the end of all of our podcasts actually comes from Star Trek V. And one of the things that I really enjoyed about the score was we had Goldsmith back. Um, those TNG people stole our theme from the motion picture. I mean, just outright stole. It wasn't right, wrong, completely. You know, they, there's nothing original about that show. Just kidding, Amy. Uh, and, and 
to to hear that music start off the uh, the movie again, I really like that. The Klingon theme was back, although they had some kind of weird rooster crowing in the background when it was. I don't know what that was, but they 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 really did a nice job. I thought with with the score itself. I don't know if you guys appreciate the musical aspects of it. I think Kayla, you told me you're pre you're pretty deep into it. What were your thoughts there? Yeah, um, you know, like when we talked about Star Trek for you and I, I I enjoyed it. I think the the moments and the score fit in well with the scenes that were being shown um i liked the goldsmith was back i mean he's great he did a ton of star trek so um and i love the klingon theme i love that i think it's great it's one of my favorite favorite ones from the original series um and and it's nice to have to have that original score back um and it moves well. There, there's light moments to the music that when the scenes are lighter, um, and it's not super heavy, it's not super dark. Um, even in those kind of heavier moments in the film, it's more quiet, which is actually kind of surprising um, and a little nice too to not have this kind of deep, heavy music playing in these heavier moments. So you get that character interaction a little bit more rather than paying attention to the music, at least for me. Um, I enjoyed it. Oh, nice. What about you, Brianna? Any thoughts on that? I will say that um, I don't think I noticed the music as much in this one as compared to the others. And that's probably something too. Um, it was, I was, as Kelly just said, sort of more focused on the characters. I noticed, if anything, the sound effects more. Um, I wish I would have noticed the music more. And I was particularly sort of like listening for that as I sort of went back and watched it, but I still it sort of just passed over me. Um, and that I probably wanted it. Instead, it was the other the other sounds that sort of jumped out. So um, for like the the god sounds when they're there with the being, you know, it almost sounds like a recycled whale sonar sound like from the fourth one um there were just some really weird and then of course you can't think about the music without thinking about uhura's song um there yeah we never touched on that did we uh it it's an interesting um and i normally i pay great attention to music um and i didn't i didn't notice um the the score as much in this one as, as i wanted to i think Okay, Bill, what about the score and what about Ahura? Oh, man. Uh, well, let me start with the score. I'll go with the first question first. Um, I love the score to this movie because, largely because I love Maestro Goldsmith's work overall. He's one of my favorite movie composers. Um, his work throughout Star Trek, I think, has been fantastic. And, and I think Brianna's right. I mean, this is one of those scores where you don't notice it as much because it underplays the action really, really well. You know, when music stands out, it's because it's supposed to stand out. And I think that this score does a really nice job of punctuating what's going on in the scenes to the point where it's not distracting. Um, if you listen to the soundtrack album on its own, it's a great listen. Um, I, I have it on my iPod. I listen to all of the Star Trek soundtracks, Star Trek soundtracks, say that 10 times fast, quite regularly. And this one is actually one I use, is one of my go-to soundtracks. So um, I love Goldsmith's work. You're right. You know, TNG stole that theme. It's ours. Um, and they can have it when they can pry it from my cold dead fingers. Um, regarding Uhura, it was fantastic to hear Nichelle sing. I love Nichelle, uh, you know, tangent alert. Nichelle Nichols was probably my first celebrity crush of all time as a young boy in the 70s. I adore Nichelle. I adore Uhura. 
Um, however, but when I saw this in 1989, it was incredibly noticeable to me that Uhura and my mom were the same age. And watching the fan dance was not as entertaining for me because I couldn't separate the two at the time. Um, oh so, boy. yeah, it's, it, it was great that Nichelle had something to do. And it does help propel the plot. But when I watch the fan dance, I'm sort of like, oh, it's like my mom doing a fan dance. And there's your episode title. My mom doing a fan dance. <laughs> yeah, that's, okay. that's, that, that, that works. I, I, go ahead, Haley. I'm sorry. <laughs> I, I was going to say you realize that Goldsmith was the one who did the theme for TNG. So technically, TNG didn't steal it when we had Goldsmith working on, on the music for most of TNG. Lies. No. That's not true. That's not true. Yeah, I, I, I think you're going to have to talk. Bichet will have to educate you on who did the music for TNG. Yeah. Anyway, well, go ahead, Haley. I'm sorry. Well, I was just, I think it's interesting. And it goes to show that people can enjoy music from a film and not necessarily enjoy the film itself. Bill doesn't like the movie, but loves the music. Well, I'm the same way. I, I think the uh, the music, especially the the opening after the opening credits, when Kirk is in his, as I noted here, you know, climbing climbing rocks and clown pants. Um, <laughs> the the music to that, where they're just doing, you know, looking over uh, Yosemite National Park in in the climb, it is uh, hauntingly beautiful, and that's why I chose that for the end theme for Standard Orbit, and that's why we play it at the end all the time. It just has this this nice approach and it just kind of gets a little bigger, a little bigger as it goes and it flows really well. And I agree with you, Bill. I think that Goldsmith, he should have won the Academy Award for Star Trek, the motion picture. I, I don't know. And it's not just because I love that movie, but it's a huge piece of what makes that movie work. Just like Jaws, you know, I mean, it's the theme was so integral to the success of the film. It pulls you right in. So I, 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 I really did enjoy that. But the question as I was going to ask is I saw the drawer that they opened up in the shuttle to get the phasers. Where's the drawer where they keep the big feathers? Any ideas? <laughs> um, I think it's to the left. It's one over. I mean, I, yeah. I, I wouldn't do space travel without two giant feathers, just in case, you know, I wanted to break out into a fan dance. So. Well, the truth is it was going to be Kirk that did the fan dance, but, um, you know, at, at that point he had to position himself strategically and, uh, and Uhura drew the short straw, so. Ah, okay. See, another thing we learn on this this podcast. Very, very well, interesting. That's why I'm here. Thanks, buddy. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> He's always got our six. All right. So let's let's get into our final thoughts here and we'll start where we uh where we began this podcast with Haley. Just let us know your, your final thoughts on the movie, good summary, and uh we'll we'll go around one last time on Star Trek five. You know Oh, and I, Rankant. I want your rating on it. Out of five. You want my rating out of five. Okay. Out of five, yeah. I would say Star Trek five is probably gonna be four for me. That's a good rating. Yeah. Um and you know it it has its plot holes and I can understand why people don't like it. I can see why people do like it. I appreciate it for what it is. I I enjoy the moments between the characters and especially 
that ending, like we said before, you know, yes, the Klingon aspect, the B plot kind of doesn't fit, but I think if they had just stuck with the A plot and, and given that more of a story, then it probably wouldn't have some of the issues that it has. But I overall appreciate it. I enjoyed it. Uh, my daughter, she's like, why do people not like Five? I liked it. <laughs> so there you have it. If my 11-year-old says you like it, you gotta like it. Well, like I said, mom of the year, you know, introducing her to TOS. Oh, thank and you. <laughs> you're, the, you're, the, you're the TNG fan, but kiddo, as we'll say, is the one who loves TOS the most. So she's, yeah, you know, sometimes it just skips a generation, Haley. I don't know what to tell yeah. you. <laughs> and it, you know what? I think it's great. I love that she likes, you know, TOS more. And that's totally fine because everybody's got their Trek that they love. And I was about her age, probably, or maybe a little older when I started watching TNG. And so that for me is my Trek. TOS is hers. There we go. I like it. Thank you. Four out of five. Uh, wow. I didn't expect that. But there it is. All yeah, right, Brianna. Brianna, you're up. No pressure. Hmm. I'd probably say like solid 3.5 maybe like I was debating between like three and four um I the reason I would probably almost sort lower than I initially would want to is because I love the underrated things um I love sort of looking at those that would normally not score so high um on a on a scale um so I'm sort of somewhere in the middle so we'll say 3.5 um I think one of the things that I just keep coming back to when I think about this um, is this idea of, of the themes of, of pain and family and what the character of Cybox brought to it. It sort of um, showed that you can always keep adapting canon and keep um, adding to it. This idea that we never heard of Cybox before but all of a sudden, stuff, oh, Spock has a half-brother. Where did this come out of the woodwork from? Um, the fact that it was still sort of a, you pulled it off, and all of a sudden you had this new nugget of information and new Trek lore to sort of add into the folds of the story um, and to show that no matter what happened to that afterwards, um, his presence in this film is sort of serving as a wedge between Spock and Kirk um, and forcing them to reevaluate what honesty means. Um, what the um, consequence of secrets is. You know, you sort of see this sense where Spock assumes um, that he doesn't have to divulge information to Kirk and sort of the consequences that occur from that. I mean, this echoes then in six, you know, with everything, you know, his actions, you know, directly involving Kirk with the Klingon sort of inadvertently lead to him, you know, going over a pente. So it's like Spock is continually learning this lesson of what it means to keep secrets from family um, and sort of then what that looks like when it comes up, I thought was just handled really, really well in terms of a dramatic standpoint um, and what they brought to it. Okay. So what was the rating again? Two and a half? Is that what you said? I feel like 3.5. Oh, 3.5, 3.5, I missed that. No, that's okay, that's fine. So four stars, 3.5. I don't know. I, th I think the average is going to start to drop, but just a funny feeling. That might be off. All right, Billy, you're up, buddy. You know, I've actually gone back and forth on my rating a couple of times as both Haley and Brianna have, have given theirs. And I finally settled on one and a half laughing Vulcans out of five. Um, and and th there's a few things I have to bring up in defending that rating. I, I don't hate this movie. 
I dislike it a lot, but it's by, it's by far not the worst Star Trek movie of all time. It gets a, a one and a half largely because it's not Generations. It gets one and a half because D. Kelly gets some of the best work he's ever done in the whole of Star Trek in the scene where McCoy has to euthanize his father and then relive that pain through Cybok. It is the best scene in this entire film. D. Kelly knocks it out of the park and proves what an incredible actor he is when he is given fantastic material. It gets one and a half because of Goldsmith's score. It gets it because of Leonard's portrayal of Spock. It gets it because of Larry Luckinbill as Cybok, who really does a great job in this, in this movie, despite the fact that it's, Cybok's not the best written character. I think that he was a great pick for this villain. I'm glad they didn't get Sean Connery, to be honest. So, um, yeah, one and a half. Uh, so I, I don't know if I'm going to be higher than you, Ken, but uh, it's, uh, it's not looking good for our heroes. No, no, I'm a little higher than you, but I'm in the same ballpark. I was thinking two all the way because there are three other movies, if you include the next-gen films that I think are worse than this, and that doesn't include the reboots. Okay? Right. So I, um, I, I can't say it's, it's the worst by any means, but there are elements to this movie that I enjoy that we talked about, the, uh, the music, uh, the friendship, the themes that go along with family. A lot of that really touched home because – you know, I, 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 at this point, I was probably 10 or 11 years deep into my Star Trek fandom, and I really love these guys. And I think the reason, like I said at the beginning, that it really bothered me that the movie didn't execute as well is because I was really cheering it, cheering for it to be just spectacular. I wanted this to, to be successful because we knew, and, and, you know, they aged a lot between four and five. The cast really did. They just, and and I felt for them, even even you know some of those scenes, especially some of the action scenes or the the costumes that they chose to put them in, it just just didn't flatter them very well. And and you're like, okay, this is this is an end of an era here. Thank God we had Star Trek VI so that they could go out the right way. I'm glad that the studio stepped up and did that. That was really in question after the poor performance at the box office for Star Trek V, and and they got some redemption. So I I think that. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm glad that happened. But, you know, it's if, if that had been the movie they went out on, it probably would have been, you know, like a one <laughs> star or less. Because you don't want them to go out like that. You know, you, you want these folks to go out with, with dignity and, and whatnot and a good production value. And, you know, and I was listening to Trek Geeks when you were talking about Star Trek VI, and I agree with you. There's a lot of things in Star Trek V that actually age better than Star Trek VI. I think a lot of that is because of the production values um, and, and kind of the technology. They really, they changed the look of the ship dramatically in six. And I think if they had kept that look, it would have been a little bit more sleeker. But of course, they were blowing it up too. So what are you going to do? About it? <laughs> yeah, anyway, you know, these, yeah, go ahead. Star Trek five, I mean, I've talked about them on Trek Geeks many times before. You know, the Enterprise was my boyhood ship of dreams and Captain Kirk was my boyhood hero. Right. And neither of those two get a really good treatment in this film. And that's, I think, as a, as a TOS fan, I, like you, I'd been a, a fan since the, you know, the early to mid-70s, Ken. And I, um, you know, Star Trek was, was it. I mean, we just finished the second season of Next Gen at this point. It was June 89. And that was a strike-shortened season. And season two wasn't the best because it ended with Shades of Grey. And then you get Star Trek V in the theaters. And it was just a, it was a summer of letdown, man. <laughs> I didn't even think about that. And you're right. Shades of Grey did in that. Oh, yeah. 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 Mm, yeah. One right after the other. That That's powerful. Okay. Well, 
first of all, let me uh, thank all of you for, for joining today and, and coming together. I really enjoyed it. This is a, this is an eclectic group we have on board, but a great team. Uh, very, very good uh, viewpoints. Uh, you know, Bill, you're, you're a professional at this. Haley, you've been doing this for a while. Brianna, for a first time, really, really solid. You brought a lot to the table, and uh, I, I really appreciated your viewpoints. So welcome to the podcasting world. You know, um, don't, don't take any of Haley's advice on what to tweet or not to tweet or invite them to tweet you bad opinions because funny thing happens, you get what you ask for. It's a, it's a weird thing. Anyway, I'm just kidding. Haley knows what she's doing. She's like a, a boxer out there when she says, come on, come at me for, what were we talking about before, Nemesis? I think we were uh, yeah. yeah, I, I had tweeted about uh, that I will watch Star Trek V over Star Trek Nemesis. And I told people to tweet at me. I've had, uh, it's had 34 people like it so far. So, and a lot of people seem to agree with me. They'll watch Five Over Nemesis. So, you know. <laughs> I, I don't know. Brianna, would you watch Five Over Nemesis? I would. Every day. Every day, Bill. We know where you are. So. Twice. 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 <laughs> yeah. 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 Okay. All right. So we, we know we have, we have, we have one podcasting person out there that's going to be devastated at this, but that's okay. She'll deal. All right, so as we go around, let's find out where we can get in touch with you folks. Bill, we'll start with you. Where can we find you on social media, sir? Oh, thank you, my friend. Uh, on Twitter, I can be found at TrekGeekBill. Um, and I think I'm the same thing on Instagram. Um, if you want to find out more about Trek Geeks, uh, your independent Star Trek podcast, or our other show, Discovering Trek, a Star Trek Discovery Companion, you can head on over to podfleet.com and find all the info you could ever want and more there. Excellent. And um, I appreciate that, Bill. I, I, I love both the podcasts that, that you and Dan put together and um, you do it as well as anyone. So I'm always impressed by the quality and, and the guests that you have. You, you know a lot of people, you know, I'm, I'm not well, in like you are. That's for sure. <laughs> I'm not even in. And we just, you know, every now and then the sun shines on a, on a dog's posterior and, and some days we're that dog's posterior. Yeah. Well, I mean, at least, you know, when Scott Mance dropped off, you got Haley Stoddard and that's, she's tough to get her contracts. Her agent is a bear to deal with. It was a much better show with Haley. I assure you. Tenfold better. I'm sure it wasn't as eclectic uh, and all over the place. So absolutely. She did a wonderful job. So Haley, where can we find you in all your challenges out there? Uh, yeah. The best place people can find me is on Twitter. I'm at Trekkie01D. That's the spot, huh? That is the spot. It's the best spot to find me. Um, yeah. Okay, Super fun. Yeah. And we, we see you <laughs> I am the, on the Babel Conference, too. And uh, Camp Kittimer. I hear yeah, you. I see you there all the time, right? Yep, that, that's I'm a good Camp team. Kittimer. Yep, that's a good spot to find me as well. Okay. And Brianna, where could people find you? Uh, best place is probably just on Twitter, same as everyone else, um, under my name, Brianna Fern. Uh, there you can find a link to my website and everything like that. So, but that's probably the best way to find me on Twitter. Okay. Well, again, I appreciate all of you joining us today. This was very fun, very lively. Thanks for the original post, Haley. You started this train of rolling, like we said at the beginning. And, uh, you know, we said it before, I'll say it again, Star Trek's like pizza. You know, when it's good, it's great. And when it's not, it's still pretty good. So we got through it all right, I would say. All right. So I look forward to having you all back on, I'm sure at some point. And um, you all take care. Previously on Trek.fm, the 602 Club. I, I kind of label this like Kryptonian curse um, that this oligarchy has taken over from the voice of Rao. And 
there is no more freedom on Krypton. There is no more free will. Everything is completely predestined from the second that you're conceived. And when I say conceived, I don't mean you got jiggy with it. Oh, with no. Girl. No, we don't no, do that no. anymore. Uh-oh. No, no, no. We just put our finger <laughs> on a button and it takes a little blood sample and then creates a child of you two together and then tells you what its entire life's going to be like. Earl Grey. The the special effects, uh, at one point, uh, they used these lasers. It wasn't uh, CGI. Back then, they actually had real lasers spinning around me as I'm sitting in the chair in the computer. Uh-huh. And the top of my head started to burn, <gasps> get hot. Oh, from the lasers. <laughs> a little bit of smoke came up. And so they had to, they, we had to cut the time uh, of the takes. Oh my gosh. <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> wow. The Edge, a Star Trek Discovery podcast. She is going to be one of the greatest comedic stars of this century. She is going to be amazing. And I love her. She's hilarious. But Tilly has become solely comedic relief in this episode. And Tilly is not just comedic relief, she is smart. Tilly is a smart person. She right. knows her job. She is going to be one of the greatest captains in Starfleet. I believe that. Literary treks. Why don't we uh, kind of wrap up with our final thoughts on Last Full Measure and uh, maybe give it a rating? So, well, Brandy, wait, 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 wait. There's um, one thing we haven't talked uh-oh. about. Exactly. Oh, okay. Go ahead, Brandy. Trip is alive. He's alive. Yes. <laughs> I loved that so You're right. much. You're absolutely right. Yeah. Totally forgot about that. How yeah, no, the whole. That? I'm so sorry. <laughs> well, the there's a reason, reason for mm-hmm. the B. Yeah. So, what's interesting is when I first read this novel, I'd always heard it was the one that's revealed that Trip is alive. And that's what else is happening on Trek.fm. So check out all these shows and join the conversation about your favorite corner of the Star Trek universe and beyond. You'll find us wherever you get your podcasts. If you're an Apple user, be sure to hit the subscribe button in Apple Podcasts on iPhone, iPad, or Apple TV, or the desktop iTunes app to get the latest episodes as soon as they are published. And please leave us a star rating and a written review. If you're not an Apple user, we've got you covered as well. You can find our shows on Google Play Music, Stitcher, TuneIn, Speaker, SoundCloud, Windows Phone, and most third-party apps, And you can stream and download the MP3 file from our website or grab the RSS link as well. If you'd like to help us keep all our shows coming to you each week, you can become a patron of the network on Patreon. Visit Patreon, that's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash TrekFM to get all the details. Perks include early access to episodes, exclusive content, producer credits, and more available through our special patrons website, Patron Zone. It requires a great deal of money to produce, host, and distribute these shows each month, so we really appreciate any support you can give us and hope you'll join the team. Again, you'll find all the details at patreon.com slash trekfm. We also want to thank very, very much our, our esteemed associate producers, Norman C. Lau, Nicholas Anastasio, Tim Robertson, Richard Marquez, Corey Elrod, and Dan Rhodes. So Norm, Nick, Tim, Richard, Corey, and Dan, thank you from the bottom of our hearts. It means as much as we can can possibly tell you uh, the world to us that, that you've agreed to sign on and help keep Standard Orbit alive and well.
Yes, thank you so much, guys. We really do appreciate all your contributions. So we'd love to hear your thoughts on today's show, and there are many ways for you to do that. The best place to join in the larger conversation is the Babel Conference, our listeners group on Facebook. Just type B-A-B-E-L into the search field on Facebook, and it should come right up. If you'd like to send us email, you can use the form on our website at trek.fm contact. Choose to send to a show and select Standard Orbit. That will come right to us. You can also find the network on Twitter at trekfm and on Facebook at facebook.com slash trekfm. As for us personally, you can find me on Twitter at moronzach, that's M-O-O-R-E-O-N-Z-A-C-H, and I'm also the host of my own show called Always Hold On to Smallville, where we talk about each and every episode of that young Superman show. You can find us on Twitter at alwaysmallville with one S. What about you, Ken? Well, you can find me on Twitter as well at Boston, S-C-P-O, stands for at Boston Senior Chief Petty Officer. And I'm also on the Babel Conference whenever I can be engaging and trying to add, you know, a lot of good provocative suggestions to our other shows. But anyway, we look forward to seeing you on the Babel Conference and responding back and forth on this show as well. All right, well, that's going to do it for us this week. But stay tuned next time for another edition of Standard Orbit. <music>